The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. This is Memorial Day weekend. I appreciated this from John Bloom. He writes, Memorial Day, as Americans have come to know it, began in the years immediately following the Civil War. But until World War II, most people knew it as Decoration Day. It was a day to decorate with flowers and flags the graves of fallen soldiers and remember those who had given, as Lincoln beautifully said, the last full measure of devotion to defend their nation. It was a day to remember what the honored dead had died to defend. A century and a half has passed since Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox effectively ending a national nightmare that filled over 625,000 American graves with dead soldiers. Since then, other international nightmares have ravaged the world and put more than 650,000 additional Americans into war graves in Europe, North Africa, the Pacific Rim, Asia, and the Middle East. Memorial Day is an important national moment. It's a day to do more than barbecue. It is right and wise to remember the great price some have paid to preserve the historically unprecedented civil and religious freedoms we Americans have the luxury to take largely for granted. But the importance of Memorial Day is more for our future than it is for our past. It is crucial that we remember the nightmares and why they happened. We forget them at our own peril. The future of the United States depends in large amount on how well we collectively remember and cherish what liberty really is and the terror of tyranny. There is a high cost to forgetting. In the words of George Santana's famous aphorism, aphorism, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Christians of all people understand the crucial importance of remembering. Christians are memorial people because the whole of our faith depends upon remembering. Those who persevere into the glorious future are those who remember the gracious past. That's why God has surrounded us with memorials. The entire Bible itself is a memorial. We meditate on it daily to remember. The Sabbath was a memorial to Israel's freedom from Egyptian slavery, and the church switched it to Sundays as a memorial to Christ's resurrection and our freedom from sin. Israel's great gathering feast days were memorials. And now each time a local church gathers, each Lord's Supper celebration, each baptism, each Christmas celebration, each Easter celebration is a memorial. Remembering God's past grace is necessary to fuel our faith in God's future grace for us. This makes the memory 
this makes the memory one of God's most profound, mysterious, and merciful gifts granted to us. God designed it to be a means of preserving or persevering grace for his people. We neglect it at our own peril. The future of the church, globally and locally, and of each Christian depends largely on how well we remember the gospel of Jesus, all his precious and very great promises, and the successes and failures of church history. Scripture warns us that if we fail to remember, we will be condemned to submit again to sin's hell's enslavement. Such warnings are graces to help us remember. So as we commemorate Memorial Day as Americans, let's do it with profound gratitude for the extraordinary common grace given to us when men and women laid down their lives for the sake of America's survival. And let us remember the past evils that we may not repeat them in the future. And as Christians, let us make every day, as long as it is called today, a memorial day. Let us take care lest we forget the Lord. The good reminder. I especially appreciate the line, the importance of memorial day is more for our future than it is our past. And now, you know, how this is especially true for Christians regarding what Christ has done for us. So this morning I want to focus on on the death of Jesus and his last words and just what it is that he finished. Let's pray before we go to God's word. Lord God, we of all people need to be a thankful people to not forget to not feel entitled or take for granted what others have done on our behalf. How we have benefited by the sacrifices of many. And Lord, we remember and give thanks, recognizing that every good and perfect gift comes from your hand of providence. Lord, we lift up our country and ask that you would intervene, that you would cause us, cause our leaders to remember, to remember true history and the mistakes from which we should learn. And as your church, we ask the same, but for much more glorious purposes. Grant us wisdom in remembering what Christ has done and the humility to seek your face and to trust you in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our scripture is John 19. We're going to be reading verses 23 through 30, but mostly focusing on that last verse. Uh, If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. John 19, starting at verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose that shall be. 
This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, there is, there is no United States of America without the sacrifice of men and women to give us the blessings that we enjoy today. And there is a greater freedom, an incomparable sacrifice, an everlasting joy and life because of what we just read in John's gospel. Because of what Jesus has done for us. So there is no Christianity without Christ and his death upon the cross. There is no genuine hope for the future without this. And remembering, remembering is important for today and every day. Never taking for granted God's rich and glorious grace to us. We live in light of this. And so let's think about what Jesus accomplished for us. Jesus said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The other gospels tell us that Jesus uttered a loud cry just before his death. Two of the gospels tell us that Jesus had been given a drink just before he let out this loud cry. So putting these pieces together, we conclude that Jesus in a loud voice, declared, it is finished. These last words were not gasping sobs of defeat or a resigned declaration of a fate he could not avoid. No, these were, these were words of triumph concerning the ultimate crux, the ultimate turning point in history. What God promised way back in Genesis 3, that he would send one who, whose heel would be bruised and who would crush the head of the serpent, the types and shadows that, that point to this, to, to this reality, this work that Jesus had been sent in the world to do, it's been done. It's finished. As much as we appreciate other sacrifices and deaths, none compare to this. None compare to this and what it accomplished. 
His death is unique. Paul speaks of this as the ultimate time that all was leading to this. That when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. To redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive an adoption. An adoption that would permit us to cry out, Abba, Father. No longer slaves, but sons, daughters, heirs, because of God's grace. There's there's nothing greater than this. A righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. And he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. At this point in time, God demonstrates his righteousness in order to be both just, just as a judge, and the one who forgives those who have faith in Jesus. Remember, remember the very Name of God describes him as merciful and forgiving and yet never letting the guilty go unpunished. God loves to forgive. And apart from this death of Jesus, he can't forgive. This death of Jesus enables God to be both just in punishing the guilty And the one who justifies or declares forgiven and righteous those who belong to Jesus through faith. There's no death like Jesus' death. Now I want to consider why this is true. By thinking about four words. Four words that describe what he accomplished. What he finished on the cross. Sacrifice. Propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption. First, sacrifice. We use this word when describing our appreciation for soldiers who gave their lives so that we might enjoy freedom. It's a sacrifice. They gave themselves for us for the sake of people being free. And we rightly honor and we remember them for this. But let's get a little more primitive. I remember R.C. Sproul describing a lecture he was giving on the atonement and how it angered someone uh, in the audience. And this person shouted out in the middle of his lecture on atonement, that's primitive and obscene. And R.C. took advantage of this moment to teach, saying... You know, you're right. I agree. Jesus became a curse for us. He took our sins upon himself. And the wrath of God was poured out on him as he hung in our place. And to truly represent us, he was obscene. He became disgusting for us. And this was offensive. So obscene is a good word to use when describing the cross. But this idea of a sacrifice is also primitive in that it gets 
to a very basic idea or an ancient ritual. In fact, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. And you know, you know the details of God's covenant with them, right? Be fruitful and multiply, subdue, work, bring order to creation, and you're going to enjoy life. You can eat from, from all of these trees, but that one. Don't eat from that one. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do eat from that one, you'll die. And death is understood, rightly understood, as separation. And so death is not only physical, but spiritual. Adam and Eve didn't physically die on the spot. But because of their sin, they would taste death. They would taste physical death eventually. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. And spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. And this is not to say that that God is no longer present with this person or that hell is a place where people don't experience his presence. No, what's meant by this separation is a separation of a good and favorable relationship with God. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is present in hell. But sin separates our souls from this good relationship with him. This is why Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In other words, Jesus was experiencing separation. He was experiencing hell for us. Jesus bore the hell that we deserve because God's wrath was poured out on him on the cross. God turned away his goodness from the Son and punished him in our place. This is what sin deserves. This is the consequence that God made clear all the way back in the garden. It's an ancient, primitive truth. The Bible says that the penalty for sin is death, it says that the soul who sins will die. Death, separation, the soul not only separated from the body, but from a good and loving relationship with God. Jesus took this upon himself for us. And the idea of a sacrifice has this idea of being a substitute. So let's get primitive here. Let's go back to Adam and Eve in the garden. God's warning to them. They sinned against God. And what do we see Adam and Eve doing after they sinned? They heard God walking in the garden and they hid. Separation. And of course, no one can truly hide from God. So God called them out of their hiding place and began to deal with their sin. And immediately we see grace. God had said, the day you sin, you shall surely die. But he did not execute them on the spot. He had every right to put them to death, both physically and spiritually, but God had mercy on them. But in showing them mercy, 
God didn't simply say, no, no, you know, I'm really disappointed in you. You promise you won't do it again? You better not do it again. Otherwise, you know what you're going to get. That's not how he, he reacted. No, God is just. He can't ignore crimes. He, he can't sweep them under the carpet. He must bring about the penalty of death. And so, he introduces this idea of a sacrifice. There is a payment of death through a substitute. God kills some animals, clothes Adam and Eve in their skins, and they must have been horrified. They must have... Had they ever seen death before? It must have been shocking. As this death they knew was their fault. And as they were reminded not only of their sin but God's grace as they wore these skins. It was a message that even though they are the ones who deserve to die, it was possible. So this is part of the... It's possible for another to die in their place. The meaning of sacrifice has to do with substitution. It's the death of one on behalf of another. So this animal sacrifice was was a very impactful picture. And, And that's all it was meant to be, a picture, a symbol, an illustration of the truth that God can deal with sin through a substitute. And Hebrews 4 or 10.4 tells us that these sacrifices were never meant to be the final solution to the problem of sin. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These animal sacrifices could not be our substitutes because man is the one who sinned. And so man, not animals, must ultimately pay the price. But these sacrifices taught us. They pointed to what God had graciously decided to do before the foundations of the world to send his spotless lamb. His son who took on flesh, truly man, the only sinless one, and thus able to be an acceptable substitute. A sacrifice that would enable God to be both just in punishing sin and just in forgiving sinners. The death of Jesus was planned before the creation uh, in the covenant of redemption and promised in the garden. The death of these animals didn't take away sin, but they pointed to the promised offspring who would. And they... and All Old Testament saints were saved by faith that believed the promise of God. They looked forward in faith to the promised one. And we, in faith, look back to Jesus, who who declared that it is finally finished. A second word that will help us understand the significance of Christ's death is propitiation. Jesus is the sacrifice, a substitute. A substitute has to do with us, while propitiation has to do with God. The Bible gives a great picture of this in the Ark of the Covenant, 
what do we understand about this, this piece of furniture that was kept in the most sacred part of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies? It's, it's a gold-covered chest with a solid gold lid known as the mercy seat. This mercy seat had these two cherubim with outstretched wings. And inside the chest were stone tablets, these stone tablets, the law given to Moses. So this ark symbolized, it symbolized the earthly dwelling place of God, his presence, that he dwelt, they believed, in the space between the the mercy seat and the wings of the cherubim. This is where God dwelt. It was the holy of holies because of God's presence. And no one but the high priest was allowed to enter. And he only entered once a year on the Day of Atonement. So really, it's terrifying. This is a terrifying place. Because God is holy and man is sinful. And we get an idea of this terror when we realize what happens to sinful man entering into the presence of God. He's consumed. He's killed on the spot. So that high priest better be rightly prepared um, going into the Holy of Holies. So we get get an idea of this from a tradition. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but you've heard a tradition that describes how the high priest would have a rope tied around his ankle. And the reason he'd have the rope tied around his ankle is because if he fell and they heard the bells jingling, they knew he was dead, and the cleanup crew wouldn't get wiped out so they could pull him out. What's pictured with the ark is God looking down upon the law. Remember, God's presence between the wings of the cherubim and the mercy seat. God is looking down upon the law in the chest, this law which has been broken. And the right response of a holy God is wrath. It's justice. It's punishment. But here's what happened on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would enter in, bringing the blood of the sacrifice, and he would sprinkle the blood on the lid, on the mercy seat of the ark, the place between the presence of God and the law. With this, we get a picture of propitiation. Instead of God looking down and seeing his broken law, now he sees the blood of the sacrifice. Now he sees an innocent one has died and taken the penalty as a substitute. So God's wrath is averted and the people are spared. And again, we remember that the the blood of bulls and goats cannot actually take away sin. The sprinkling of the blood by the high priest didn't remove the sin, but it pointed to Jesus. Jesus, whose substitutionary death, whose shed blood for us would once and for all remove our sin. And so when Jesus died, God's wrath was finally, literally propitiated. And God revealed this to us as he, as he tore the veil of the curtain which separated the Holy of Holies, right? This happening on 
at the death of Jesus, this veil being torn from top to bottom, and it communicates that for all who believe in Jesus, we now have access. You don't have to have a rope tied around your ankle. You have access into the holy presence of God. We're covered. We're covered in the propitiating blood of Jesus. And we, we can enter into his presence, no longer fearing to be consumed, but with a confidence we draw near because of what Jesus has done. He has propitiated the wrath of God. Now, by the indwelling Holy Spirit, we are, we are the dwelling place of God. We are the temple of God. There's, there's no need for a, a physical temple to be rebuilt. In fact, that's a blasphemous thought to rebuild the temple because that's a place where animals are sacrificed. And Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the final sacrifice. He is our propitiation. He is the one who said, it is finished. Which brings us to a, our third word, describing that Jesus' death brought about reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, we read, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Reconciliation means to make one. To make one. Remember the result of the very first sin. It brought about death. Death which separates us from God. And reconciliation makes us one. Prior to their sin, Adam and Eve enjoyed the presence of God. But after sinning, they hid from him. Their relationship was broken. And their sin was passed to us. And all of mankind has been separated from God ever since. People say, well, that they're searching for God. But scripture tells us otherwise. People want some religious experience to maybe fill the, the void. But it's just another form of hiding. It's just another form of hiding in the garden. Adam and Eve, they didn't come to God looking for him. God came looking for them. And this is the reality of all mankind. If we love him, it's because he first loved us. He's the one initiating. He's the one doing what needs to be done in order to bring us back and make us one with him. We're not the ones who healed the broken relationship he is. Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. He has done it. And so think of the meaning of his declaration, it is finished. He's saying that his sacrifice, his substitutionary atonement, his wrath-averting work of propitiation, this unique, one-of-a-kind sacrifice has accomplished the greatest work of all reconciling what man has broken by the God-man, Jesus Christ. 
And finally, we marvel at the death of Jesus because through this we have redemption. We say, we even sing these words, but it's good to have a clear understanding of what they mean. Sacrifice involves a substitute dying in our place, taking the penalty that we deserve so that we might live. Propitiation has to do with God's wrath being averted. Remember the presence of a holy God looking down at his broken law and the sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. Ultimately, the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, satisfying his just wrath. Jesus bearing God's wrath for us and shielding us from the wrath that we deserve. Reconciliation, which is initiated by God, doing the work necessary to restore the broken relationship and make us one with him again. And now redemption. Redemption, a word that means to buy. Buying again or buying back. And we think of situations like, if you, you know, if you owned your house in full and you refinanced and you started paying a mortgage again, you would be paying that mortgage to redeem it, to buy it back. If you take something to a, a pawn shop, they'll give you some money for it and they'll give you some time to pay it back so you can buy it back. So we may understand this concept with, with material things, But the Bible uses it concerning us, humans, made in the image of God. He is the creator, and we belong to him. But because of sin, we have fallen into bondage. We've become slaves of another. And Christ's sacrifice pays a price to buy us out of bondage. To buy us out of bondage and back to him. John Murray writes, just as sacrifice is directed to the need created by our guilt, propitiation to the need that arises from the wrath of God, and reconciliation to the need arising from our alienation from God, so redemption is directed to the bondage to which our sin has consigned us. This bondage is, of course, multiform. Consequently, redemption as purchase or ransom receives a wide variety of reference and application. Redemption applies to every respect in which we are bound and it releases us unto liberty that is nothing less than the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Paul in Romans 3 says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption of That is in Christ Jesus. And Peter says, you were ransomed. You think of it that way? You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here's something really cool. The Greek word translated as, it is finished, it's just one Greek word translated as, it is finished, was a word also used in business transactions. 
And the alternate translation of the same Greek word is paid in full. Isn't that cool? His last words were not a sob of defeat or a resigning himself to a death that he couldn't avoid. No, it was a, it was a shout of triumph before he chose when to give up his spirit. He was in control. We have many heroes, but none like Jesus. Many who deserve our appreciation, but none that has given us our ultimate freedom. And as James Boyce put it, we deserved to die for sin. Christ died for us. We were under the just wrath of God by reason of our transgressions. Christ bore that wrath in our place. We were alienated from God. Christ reconciled us to him. We were sold under sin. Christ bought our freedom by paying sin's price. There's no death, no sacrifice like his. So on Memorial Day weekend, we remember. It's important that we remember, that we give thanks for the many sacrifices that have given us so much. And as Christ's church, we remember. We remember, we give thanks that the greatest sacrifice of all was finished on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your glorious grace. Grace before the foundation of the world in your covenant of redemption, in a plan to send your son to die for us. What a story you have given to us in your word. Giving us picture after picture of Jesus. A story that communicates your perfection as as holy, holy, holy. As a God who will by no means clear the guilty. And yet a God who is also merciful, gracious, and forgiving. And the answer, the, the revelation of your glory is found in the face of of Jesus Christ, our institutionary sacrifice, the one who bore the wrath that we deserve, the one who unites us to you and purchased us back from the bondage we were under. Lord, help us to remember. Help us to remember those who fought to give us the blessings we enjoy and Jesus most of all. We give thanks. We thank you for this finished work of Jesus on the cross, and we pray in his name. Amen.